All right. Uh, the topic is angels and sin. All right. That's to catch us up where we are. So the the uh, the holy angels. What what are they according to Hebrews one fourteen? Uh, it says that they're all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Coming from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger, uh, Malachi in Hebrew, which means messenger as well. So this is describing their, not their essence, but their office, that they are messengers, that their task is to communicate and carry out what God himself has said or done. Now, uh, the question is, how many angels are there? The best I could answer this is by saying a lot, many. Uh, the number of angels is very, very large in the scriptures. They are, however, uncounted and unrevealed. So Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 gives us a good clue. It says this, thousand thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Again, this isn't an exhaustive number. It's just talking about a portion. Already we're in the millions when we talk about when we uh, multiply those numbers. Luke chapter 2 verse 13 says a multitude of the heavenly host. That's a vague number. Uh, that's a vague word signifying a, a, a certain number. Uh, Psalm 68 verse 17 says 20,000, even thousands uh, of angels. <clears throat> so we know that there's, there's a lot and that they can't be counted, that there's uh, estimates of this in the scriptures. Now, we talk about the two ways. What are the two ways that the angels help Christians? As I said at the beginning, will they serve Christians? Well, the two ways they serve them are in life and in death. And the holy angels watch over and protect Christians in life. Now, this we get from Psalm 91, starting at verse 11, going to verse 12. And it says this, He shall give his angels, God shall give his angels, charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Not in some of the ways, but in all of the ways. And they, the angels, shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So that throughout your life, that is to protect you physically, uh, the angels have been given by God uh, to you. To protect you. Again, we also have that text in Matthew 18 uh, when Jesus himself says about of the little ones, he says, and I tell you that they're, uh, they're angels. Um, and he uses that word that's the possessive, meaning this is where we get the idea of a guardian angel. Now, Jesus never said how many. It could be one angel. It could be many. It could be a dozen. But he does say that there are angels assigned to each Christian, that the Lord assigns to each Christian to guard and protect them. So that's the first way is that they watch over us in life. Now, the second way that they help Christians is in death. And we get this from Luke chapter 16, verse 22. This was the text two Sundays ago on the first Sunday of Trinity. This was the uh, Luke 16, uh, the account of the rich man and Lazarus. <clears throat> And in this text, it says, the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's bosom is just saying where he is. And we can talk about that later, what heaven is. Um, wherever Abraham is, that's where 
the angels took him. Um, but that the angels help us even in death in that they take us to God. They take us to the Father. They take us to heaven. Okay, uh, so there's other, those are the two ways angels help Christians. Um, now the question comes up, well, when were the angels created? And this is a interesting thing to think about. So we have to, now that we've already talked about creation and God and, and man, we have to ask, uh, well, what about the angels? And these are unique beings. And I, I also want to tell you and remind you of the uniqueness of man, that animals have bodies, but no soul. Angels have souls. They, they are souls. They are spirits, but no body. But man is unique in this way, that he, man has both a body and a soul. He is both body and spirit completely. That's what makes up man. And we'll talk about the significance of that later, how, how important and unique mankind is in, in all of creation, that he's the only one that has this uh, kind of duality in him. Now, we, we have to ask, well, when were the angels created? Because the angels are creatures, and that, that is, they're not eternal. So they are creatures of God. And so the first question is, were the angels created before the six days of creation? So we have the six days, and then uh, within the six days, God creates everything. Well, were they created before that time? And the answer is no. So John chapter 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, that is through Christ. And without him was not anything made that was made. So then we have to say, well, are the angels made? Are they, are they creatures? Well, yes, they're creatures. So uh, that, that means that the angels were made through Christ. And when was that creation? Uh, when did it take place? Well, it took place in the beginning, which is what John 1 is saying. Uh, also, we have this other text, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For by him, that is by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. So everything you see and don't see, the visible and the invisible, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the text says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we get this, uh, this indication in the scriptures that the angels who are created beings, the things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were created through Christ and that this was done in the creation. So, when were were the angels created before creation? The six days of creation? No, they were created uh, uh, in in creation. The second question is: Well, were the angels created after the six days of creation? So God creates, and afterward, no. Uh, and we know this because Genesis chapter two verse three says that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on that day He rested from all the work of creation that he had accomplished. So we have this understanding that whatever he created, he completed. Exodus 20 verse 11 says this, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That means everything that's in the sea, everything that's in the earth, and everything that is in heaven he created in the six days. And then it continues in uh, verse 11. But on the seventh day he rested. So we do know it, they weren't created before creation. They weren't created after the six days of creation. They're within the six days of creation. 
uh, now we have to say, well, well, when in those six days did we, uh, were the angels created? Well, <clears throat> what else does the Bible say? We don't know for sure. So we can't, this isn't, we can't build a, a, a house upon this. This isn't, um, th- this is a good guess and a good idea. I would think around the fourth day, and this is why. Uh, Job chapter 38 verse 7 gives us this <clears throat> this verse and this clue. It says, on what were its foundations set? So this is God questioning Job and saying, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? You weren't there. I know what I'm talking about, Job. You don't know what you're talking about. And then he's recounting these things of when he created the world. And one of the questions here that the Lord asked the Job is on what were its foundations set? So what is the earth hanging on? How is it there? And then it says, or who laid its cornerstone? What was the first part of the world that was built? And then the world built around it. And then it says, who, who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, that is the angels, shouted for joy. <laughs> so... In other words, we have um, we have a clue here that the angels witnessed the creation of the stars. They witnessed the creation of the, the morning stars. And that happened on day four. So this verse seems to suggest that the creation of the stars was witnessed by the angels on the fourth day. So within the first four days, that's when the angels were created. Uh, so we'd say maybe not the day five or six, but certainly between the first four. Um, and then again, this is something we can debate and speculate on, but this isn't doctrinal. This isn't something that would break fellowship within a church. Um, but the best we could do is kind of guess that it's within the first four days of creation. Okay, so that that's about the angels. And I talked specifically about the good angels, the holy angels, but now... We have to understand that there are evil angels. And the question is, well, where did they come from? Well, God didn't create angels to be evil. Uh, many holy angels, what happened was that they sinned and they became evil angels. And that's the word we use today. We call them demons. Second <clears throat> uh, Peter 2, 4. Let me see if I could share my screen again. I tried this once, but... It didn't work, so let me see. Okay, I got it working. So, this is Second Peter 2, 4. And it says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Uh, and then it continues, if he did not spare the ancient world and no one, so on and so forth. So here it's saying, God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but rather he cast them into hell. Uh, another text is Mark. F- uh, so, so those are, sorry, that's, uh, those are the evil angels. That means that they did sin and they became evil. They, he didn't spare them. And then what did he do? He cast them into hell. And we're going to talk about hell in a little bit, uh, in a few moments too. Um, Another text I want to show you is Mark chapter 5, verse 9. 
And this is Jesus speaking to the Gerasene demoniac. So there's a, there's a man who's possessed by demons, plural. And this is the exchange that they're having. And Jesus asks, <clears throat> he asked the man, what is your name? And he replied, um, so Jesus asked this and, and the word you're there is singular. What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, which is uh, a, a, a big number. This is about 20,000 for we are many. So in other words, this man was filled with a legion of, of demons. So what we can deduce from this is that there are many. So we're not saying that all the host of hell was in this man, but there are a lot. So how many evil angels are there? There's a lot. But again, we don't know the number uh, for sure. Now, we do know that the evil angels hate God and they also hate man. And I'll just give you the references for that as well. Um, I don't know if we'll have the time to look this up. But Revelation chapter 12 verse 7 shows us that they hold God in contempt, that they hate God. And Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 which is the account of the fall into sin, shows that they hate man, that they attacked uh, man by tempting him. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay, so now we know that there are good angels, there are evil angels. Uh, we also know that God created all the angels good and some of those angels fell away and that they were created within the first four days of creation. Now the question is, when did they fall away? So the scripture says they sinned. Well, when did they sin uh, in, in that time? At what point in Genesis did they sin? Well, we have to go through this again in our minds. We have to say, well, when we have to ask a couple of questions. Did they sin within the six days of creation? And Genesis 1.31 says this. So I want you to pay close attention. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God declared everything very good. And so we can deduce that the angels did not sin within those six days of creation. So uh, if, if I could put up a timeline, so you have let there be light, the beginning of creation and then the six days of creation and God looks at everything he made and he says, it's very good. And the angels are created maybe somewhere around the fourth day. So there's about two days that things are going well. Did they sin after? The second question now is, did they sin after the seventh day? Um, and the answer would be yes. Because Genesis 3 tells us that the serpent was the devil and the devil was already the devil by the time of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. So they didn't sin within the first six days. Uh, and now there's this time period that we don't quite know of. From the seventh day that God rested from everything he made and the fall. And then we say, well, that's an undisclosed amount of time. I don't know how long uh, that could have been. So the angels fell any time after the sixth day and before Adam and Eve's fall into sin. Uh, it could have been a matter of a few hours. It could have been uh, days or weeks. Most likely it wasn't years because Adam and Eve probably would have already conceived and given birth to a child. Uh, they conceived the child in chapter four, which happens right after the fall and the promise of the gospel. Uh, so 
I don't think it's a very long amount of time. I think Martin Luther himself says that it's even in the evening of the seventh day. That is very, very with, within the very moments of it. While God is resting when all of this uh, falls apart. So that's w- when did the angels sin. So we do know it's with whatever that window is, that's when they sinned. Okay, <clears throat> any questions so far? Nope. All right. If you do have a question, just uh, stop me or interrupt me here. Now, I want to talk about the devil himself. Uh, Who is the devil? Well, we know that the devil is coming from one of these evil angels that sinned. Um, Now, we do know that the devil is a fallen angel. Uh, He is a creature. And that's important to keep in mind because a lot of people ascribe more power to the devil than they should. This, the devil is powerful, but he's not omnipotent. He's not opposing God. Remember, he's a creature of God, but he's not tantamount to God. Uh, the devil knows a lot, but he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know all things. Now, can, can demons communicate? Yeah, of course. Like animals communicate. We have birds communicating with each other. Can humans communicate? Yes. Can demons communicate? Yeah. Can one demon witness one thing and communicate it to another at one point in your life and then talk about it another time? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think 100%. Um, so, so the devil may know a lot of things, but he's not omniscient. He doesn't know the heart even. Now he knows how the heart works, but he doesn't know your thoughts. God knows that. Uh, He knows the unique things about you. Uh, The devil can afflict us and he can be present, but he's not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at once. So when we talk, when we say that, when we ascribe things and say, well, the devil did this, uh, this is in English, we call this synecdoche, which is that you would use a part to describe the whole. We don't mean that the act, it could be that the devil himself did this, um, I don't know, that we could say this is the work of the devil. We're not saying that the devil is the one who's doing all these things at once, but that he is the name we give to, uh, he's the chief one under which all the other demons work, right? And, and we'll talk about that too. The, the name, the devil, uh, comes from the scriptures. In the first instance we get is Numbers 22, verse 22, Chapter 22, verse 22. And this is the first time the scriptures use the word Satan or Satan. And it means literally adversary. So that is your opponent, your adversary. Uh, We also see in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, that the the devil is called Lucifer. Lucifer means the bearer of light. Uh, In church, we have people who carry the cross. That's a crucifer. That's someone who bears the cross, who holds it. The Lucifer, loose is light one who bears the light. Uh, and we can always go in deeper into this sort of stuff as well. There's, there's a lot more there. Uh, the devil is also referred to as the evil one in the Lord's Prayer. And when we get to this later on, we see the seventh petition, the last part of the Lord's Prayer, we say, and deliver us from evil. And that's not the right translation. It's actually, it's, it's not bad. But what I'm saying is that Jesus is very specific there when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer. He says, and deliver us from the evil one. That the whole entire Lord's Prayer is against the devil's, the devil, all his works and all his ways. 
uh, but he's called the evil one. Belzebub, Belzebub uh, which is Matthew 12, which means Lord of the Flies. And there's a connection here. You'll also see it spelled Belzebul, B-U-L. So B-U-B or B-U-L. These are words in the scriptures. B-U-L means Lord of Dung. <laughs> so Lord of the Flies. Uh, think, think about this. Where do flies gather? Around trash? around um, waste, around dead bodies, around death, around all these sort of things. Well, that is who the devil is. That's the name ascribed to him. So the, the office of the devil is that he is the chief angel. He is the chief, e- sorry, chief evil angel. And we see this in Matthew 25, 41, uh, and, and that his goal is this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, Verses 8 through 9. I want to show you what he sets out to do. Actually, this is the text for this coming Sunday, the the epistle lesson for Trinity 3. It says, this is a warning to Christians. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, uh, that is the devil, uh, that is Satan, the devil prowls around. It's not, that's not really the best translation, uh, translation the prowl. Uh, that sounds like it's sneaky. It's more that he walks around. That's a better translation. Prowl, uh, because this doesn't make sense, that he prowls around like a roaring lion. Um, if you're trying to be sneaky, you wouldn't roar. <laughs> so, but he's walking around. In other words, he's acting like he has the victory. He's a roaring lion. He's very proud. And what does he do? He is seeking someone to devour. That is, he is seeking to destroy faith. And we know that the way he devours people is by destroying their faith because verse 9 says, resist him firm in your faith. Again, the better translation here is not your faith. A lot of translations do this. It's rather firm in the faith. There's a definite article there. It's not possessive. It's not talking about your individual individual faith. It's talking about the faith. It's talking about uh, what, what is taught, the scriptures themselves. Anyway, that the way to resist the devil is by standing firm in the faith. And that what the devil wants to do is make you not firm in the faith. So that's how he devours people. I, I want to tell you too that this is a, the, the, the devil acts differently at different times. Uh, in the midst of suffering, he walks around like a lion roaring to show that he has victory over you or to intimidate you and scare you. But the devil also is like a serpent in that he is sneaky. So that I would say this, that before you sin, the devil is sneaky like a serpent after you sin, he is like a lion uh, that he tries to say uh, that he has the upper hand over you. We'll, we'll talk about those things too. Um, but that, that is the, the goal of the devil is to destroy our salvation. Um, in, in other words, he's envious. Uh, the devil is envious. He wants to destroy what God is giving us. <clears throat> And I, man, there's so much I can say here, but there's a distinction between jealousy and envy. And I want to point this out because the scriptures say, when we talked about the attributes of God last time, 
Uh, one of the attributes of God is jealousy. God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And we oftentimes think that jealousy is a bad thing. But it's not because if God himself says he's jealous, then it can't be bad because God is not evil. He's benevolent. So jealousy is not bad. Um, Rightly understood. The way we use the word jealousy, we're talking about somebody who's possessive and really, uh, I don't know, doesn't let their husband or wife talk to any, I don't know, like the jealous boyfriend or girlfriend. That's the kind of the idea we have. Um, But Jealousy is a virtue. To be jealous means to want what is rightfully yours. That's what God wants. When he says, I'm a jealous God, he's jealous of us. That is, he loves us and he wants us for himself because we truly belong to him. Envy, on the other hand, is to want what is not yours in an evil or, or hateful way. That is to look at your neighbor and see his house and say, well, if I can't have that house, then nobody can, and then burn it down, right? That's, that's envy. So envy is a, is a very evil thing, where jealousy, we could use it in a good or bad sense. Um, but envy always is, is evil. Well, the, that's what the devil is. We don't belong to him. I mean, naturally we do, which we'll talk about. But uh, we're not his. We belong to God. And God favors us and looks highly uh, upon us and esteems us highly. Um, and the devil hates that because he's proud. Okay, one final thing on, on the angels and the devil himself is on hell. And I want to show you this text, Matthew twenty five forty one. Now, this is a long, long text, and this is Jesus talking about the final judgment. There's a lot here. The the entirety of Matthew 25 is three separate accounts of the end, uh, two parables and one prediction of what will happen. And this is the prediction. But this is in verse 41. I mean, this is very revealing here. This is the final judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats. Again, we'll talk about that on the Actually, the last class, we'll talk about the last things. And God says, he will say to those on his left, that is the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for who? For the devil and his angels. Now, so, so from this, we can see, well, who, who is hell for? Who is uh, eternal fire prepared for? Who was it intended for? It was intended for the devil and his angels. Um, It was never intended for man. We were never supposed to go there. And uh, this was never the intention or the design of God. Now, that means if people do go there, it's because they followed the devil and his angels. That that this would be a voluntary thing. People um, going there. In fact... This past Sunday, I, I wrote a sermon on the gospel lesson. In fact, I'll, I'll just email this to you guys, uh, the, the original sermon I, I wrote. And I'm responding to the critique of Christianity when people say, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. And I wrote a sermon on kind of responding to that. And then all of this stuff happened on Friday with the, um, the Supreme Court. And I 
tossed the sermon away and then I wrote a new one. <laughs> so, so I wrote two sermons last week, uh, but I'll, I'll go ahead and send this one out because I think it's relevant and it's on the very topic that you guys are, uh, that, that we're looking at right now on hell. And, and the point is that God never wanted us to go there. He never wanted anybody there. It was never his intention. So we'll, we'll talk about that too um, later on when we talk about the salvation and justification. But this brings us to the end of the, t- the first part of the study on angels. Are there any questions that you guys have on that? No? Okay. If you do have a question, let me know. If not, email me or um, text or call or anything. Now, I want to talk about the second part of this uh, lesson today, which is on sin. And I want to show you that there is a deep connection. Hopefully you can see the progress that we're making. We're talking about God. We're talking about uh, man and creation. And then we're talking about uh, angels and now uh, about sin. Oh, I see a question here quickly. Oh, are people possessed by demons today like in the Bible? Uh, to answer it briefly, yes. Um, in fact, we have brothers in Nigeria. We have Christians over there, and they've talked to me about this as well. They see a lot of demon possession and a lot of things over there. Um, and here in the States, we don't, right? We say, well, what, well what's going on? Is it just because we're more developed, we're more academic now, and they're not? Uh, No, that's not the case. Uh, What I think is going on here is that the tactic of hell has changed. (laughs) Uh, And it it changes in certain parts and at certain times. So that in over there, um, he is afflicting people, that the demons are afflicting people in these physical ways. However, in the States, he's not. And here, it's because he's almost entirely convinced our entire nation that he doesn't exist. <laughs> that uh, if, if, if things like this were to happen here, then we would be, we would know, oh my goodness, there's a spiritual realm. And if there's a spiritual realm of evil, then there must be a spiritual realm of good. And if there is good, then there's a God. And this is the case. So, so I, again, um, we, we could talk more about this. There's uh, two good books that I think you should read about uh, or read and that talks about this topic. One is called I Am Not Afraid. And the other is, um, oh, I, th- I think it's called Not Afraid. Oh, th- this is it. Sorry. Afraid and Not Afraid. That's what it was. Uh, the first one was Not Afraid. And this is about a lot of demon possession. And this is written by a Lutheran pastor. I think the name is Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T. And then the second book is about spirituality and possession in the United States. And it's called Afraid. And I think uh, I can send you the link to that. It's it's really fascinating. And it's a very, very good book. Um, So would serial killers be possessed? Oh, that that's a really good question. <clears throat> uh, maybe, maybe we we have to define possession correctly. And in fact, maybe we can do this when we talk about sin. But there's a distinction between demonic oppression, that is influence of demons, 
and demonic possession, which is when somebody loses control of all of their faculties and members and does things that they would not normally do in their own body. Uh, they, they, they tend to not, this is in the realm in theology, what we would call demonology, the study of, of demons. And it's, it's a, we can go really deep into this. But um, what we see in the scriptures uh, is that uh, man can also sear his own conscience. So he can do things to a point where he doesn't feel bad about doing them anymore. And if you watch the interviews of some serial killers like Ted Bundy, um, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, people like this, and you see the interviews when they're finally caught and they're, you know, on death row, you'll hear them say things like that they didn't feel anything, that their conscience was dead, dead. I mean, like, like you, if, if you lift weights, your hands develop calluses or you work in construction, you don't feel a thing. You could cut yourself and you don't bleed. This is, they had sinned to a point it was constantly over and over and over to a point that they no longer felt bad or, or guilt. Now, I don't know if we could say that that was demonic possession, um, but we could say that they sinned to a degree that they ruined their own heart, um, almost to a point of no return. Uh, some of them converted, some of these serial killers converted before their their death. I mean, thanks be to God. I don't know if it was genuine or not. God knows it. But, um, but anyway, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, so we, we can't say for sure that all serial killers are indeed possessed by the devil because we do have people who are lucid and remember details and know what they've done and did these things against the better, um, against better knowledge. Again, that's not the case of all serial killers. Some of them say that they did feel bad while doing these things. So again, it's, it's across the board, but we can't say unilaterally that all, everyone who does this is then demon-possessed. These are good questions. Um, okay, let's move on to sin, and this might clarify some things too. Uh, what do the angels have to do with sin? Well, all of human history, well, all history, uh, even before humans, can be summarized in two major eras. And we can talk about before sin and after sin. Even though the time before sin is very short, uh, a week or so, and the time after sin is very, very long. Uh, but this is the major division because the world hasn't been the same since then. And to, to keep in mind, we are thinking about things in this second era. There's only one uh, group of people, only Adam and Eve, who saw the transition from one era to the other. The rest of us, this is all we know. We don't know any better. So even our thoughts about God are tainted with sin. And even the, sometimes even the questions we have about God are tainted in sin. Questions that we have now that Adam and Eve wouldn't have had before. So, so these are these two major eras. Well, then we say, well, what's the change? Well, the cause is the devil himself, uh, a fallen angel. And the, this is the reason. He is the reason we went from an era without sin to an era with sin. And I want to show you this in Genesis chapter 3. Ugh, it's not pulling up for me again. So 
what I'll do is I'll just read it if you can find it in um, in your Bibles. Genesis tra- chapter 3, 1 through 24 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Uh, craftiness is not sinfulness. It just, they're sneaky. Um, but it's not bad. Uh, so the devil chose the serpent, particularly for this, this reason. Uh, and the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, that's very fascinating the way he speaks. He says he's questioning the very plain words of God. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course he said that. Yes, that's what he said. But the, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I want to talk about that because, um, oh, I finally got it up again. Because God didn't say that. He didn't say, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Um, However, where is that coming from? Is she lying? No, I think what's happening here is that God said this to Adam. And then Adam It was Adam's job to teach his wife and to tell his wife. And I think this is Adam adding an extra measure of safety that Adam tells Eve, hey, Eve, God told us not to eat of any tree in the garden. In fact, don't even touch it uh, lest you die. So that that Adam is trying to protect Eve here again. But this is not something that God himself said. Now, this is where the, the problem comes in. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So, so he starts with doubt. Look at this. He did God actually say by introducing doubt. And then he simply opposes what God said. He says, um, you, uh, the, the day in which you eat of it, you'll surely die. And then he says, you will not surely die. So he's calling God a liar and he's lying and doing it for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Well, Adam and Eve, they knew good. Uh, so what is he really selling them? He's selling them evil. Uh, so that you will know what it is, what evil is. And you know, won't just know it. You'll know it by experience. But again, the devil is not forthcoming with these words. He's sneaky. He's attempting and attacking and enticing. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was a beautiful thing, and that the tree was to be, de- be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Again, we're not told what kind of fruit it was. Um, everyone assumes it's an apple. It wasn't an apple. Uh, it's just some fruit that was very beautiful and appealing. And look at this. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. That is to Adam. And that's a problem because Adam was there and he should have stopped her. But he was standing there and she gave this to him and then he ate. So Adam witnessed the whole thing and he did nothing. And then it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, I would suggest to you that 
verse 7 here, they, they knew that they were naked. In other words, they were ashamed. Where did this shame come from? This came from, they, they never felt this before, but now they do. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Um, they think that they're getting away with it. Um, one more thing here. The day in which you eat of it, you'll surely die. They ate of it and they died. God's word was true, but we'll talk about this as well. And then look at this. Verse 8 says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Again, we don't know how much time passes between when they eat of this and the Lord is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So that they just heard God and then they ran away from him. This is the saddest verse, I think, in all of the scriptures. That here are Adam and Eve, uh, made by God, loved by God, given the entire world, the, in the universe, and they hear of God and they run away from him. What should they have done? They should have run to him. And yet here's their shame and they're trying to deal with their sin on their own by escaping from it. But the Lord God called to them, uh, to the man and said to him, where are you? I want, I want to point out something here. Does God know where they are? Yeah, he knows where they are. I said this on Sunday. Why does he ask, where are you? He's asking to give them a chance to confess it, to, to come forward and say, you caught me. This is what I did. I, and, and just confess and say everything. But they didn't. And again, this is the same question he asked to their children, to Cain, and, to, to Cain about Abel. Where is your brother Abel? So he says, where are you? And he said, now Adam speaks up, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Well, what, why is he afraid? Because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I, I want to point out something here that they were naked. Uh, wouldn't they be ashamed? I, I think this is kind of like a child. Like I, I give my sons baths and they run around without clothes on and they, they're, <laughs> they, it, it's nothing to them, right? They're not ashamed. They're, it's, it's normal for them and clothes are weird to them. Well, I think that sort of innocence is also what we see in Adam and Eve here. They're, they were naked, but now they get to this point where they're ashamed of how God created them. Uh, and then he says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And verse 12 says, uh, the man said, look at this. God says, have you eaten of the tree? And the first words out of the man's mouth are the woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me. He put himself last. <laughs> he says, the woman you gave me and gave to me, right? She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Did she force him? Did she trick him? No, he took part of it himself. He did it. It's his fault. He should have said, God asked, have you eaten of the tree? And he should have said, yes, that's my sin. I did that. He doesn't have to explain himself. He just needs to confess it. Then the Lord God turns to the woman and he says, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So already you see the blame game going on. Instead of saying, what, what did I do? What have you done? Here's what I did. 
She says, nope, the serpent did it. He deceived me. I'm the victim here. And I ate. Her blame is at the end. So she's already, what are they doing? Let, Let me ask you, what are they doing here? They're justifying their actions. They are justifying their sins. They're pointing to their sin and saying, look, if, if, all, if things were different, I wouldn't have done this <laughs> rather than take responsibility. Okay, so I want to stop there and uh, we'll get into the curse and these sort of things later in, in one of the later uh, uh, times. Um, oh, Nancy uh, asks, would the outcome have been different had they confessed? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I'll put it this way. What should Adam have done if he witnessed his wife do this? First of all, Adam should have stepped in and beaten up the serpent and stomped his head and said, get out of here to leave us alone. But he didn't. If Eve would have snuck off and done this anyway, what should Adam have done? Well, Adam should have taken her by the hand, not part- had nothing to do with her sin or, or partaken it, Take her by the hand, go to God and say, hey, remember you said the day in which we eat of this, you'll certainly die. Well, she deserves to die because she sinned. She broke your law. But instead of killing her, uh, kill me. Take my life instead. Uh, Let me lay lay my life down for her um, and so that she would live. And you see, well, this is what Jesus has done. This is precisely what Ephesians is talking about. Husbands, love your wives as Christ laid down his life for the church, uh, laid his life down for her. Um, that this is what Jesus did. He fulfills and does the thing that Adam didn't. Uh, Christ dies for his bride, the church. Okay, I could go on and on about that. But uh, so, so, yeah, would it have been different had they confessed? Maybe, maybe. Um, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, the problem is that they sin and, uh, they do confess, but they are also justifying. They're still, it's not a clear or pure confession. You already see this. So, so in a sense, they do confess, but they're not as, um, as honest as they should be or take full responsibility. Um, I want to turn to Romans chapter five to show you the consequence of this. Uh, Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now, this isn't talking about a sin, but sin in general, all of it. So it comes in through one, kind of like if you have a dam, right, holding water back and there's one little crack and you say, well, what, what, how did the dam break? Well, it was that one little crack there. Well, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. We'll talk about that too when we get to the law. Uh, But it is, in other words, sin spreads. And it goes from Adam to all of his descendants. Okay, now in this last 25 minutes or so, I want to talk about sin and starting by talking about sin in general, and then we'll get into the specifics. But uh, on sin in general, well, what is sin? What is the definition of sin? Sin means breaking or 
breaking, going against anything that God says, either in your deeds, your actions, your words, your thoughts, or your desires and impulses. And, and I'll show you the text there. That's uh, Matthew chapter 5 talks about the, the thoughts and desires. Everybody agrees that deeds are sinful, that if you strike somebody in the face or you murder someone, well, that's a sin. Every, no, nobody's questioning that. And we talked about the moral argument and, and the law. Uh, we also agree that saying certain things are sinful. Um, threatening somebody. Well, that's a sin. That's bad. You shouldn't talk that way. Or demeaning people or not being nice in your kind uh, or kind in your words. But where people draw the line is that's outside of me. They, and then they draw the line and they say, well, what's inside of me? Well, that's not really sin. So my thoughts and desires, God can't hold me accountable for those things because I can't control them all the time. My impulses, how is, how, that's not fair. Well, what the scriptures reveal to us in Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus says, If you even look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. So, well, how does that work? Well, consider it this way. Um, take a murderer and take someone who's not a murderer. And you say, well, what's the difference? Okay, well, outwardly, one actually picked up a gun or a knife and uh, a murdered somebody else and the other person hasn't okay but then take away all of that and look at the heart now take away the the person and just look at the hearts of the two people well what does the heart of the murderer have in it it has to have hatred okay well look at now your heart have you ever hated somebody or been annoyed with somebody or frustrated well that's that what you find in your heart is also in their heart. And God is one who judges the heart. So that he looks at the heart and says, I'm, I'm looking to the source. What does the heart look like? Well, if this stain of hatred or annoyance or frustration, I mean, that's going to be behind every murder. There's, some str- there's something of that to some degree, which is also in your heart. And so either your heart is pure or it's not. There's no middle ground. It's either pure or impure. And no matter the amount of impurities there are, one impurity means it is totally impure. So th- this, is, this is the problem that we face. Um, so sin is always, um, uh, whoops. So, so it's breaking God's law, even in our hearts, even in our desires. And we'll talk about this when we get to the Ten Commandments on the law. But I want to say this, that sin can't be defined in a vacuum. So sin is always in relation to the law of God. Uh, Whatever God says, then the contrary or the opposite of it in positive or negative way is sin. And we know this from 1 John chapter 3 verse 4, which says sin is lawlessness. So the only way you can define sin is if you define the law. Say, what, what, what does God expect? Well, anything that's contrary to that then is sin. Okay, this is very, very important, especially when we get in preparation for the Ten Commandments and we talk about sin and the new life of the Christian. Uh, Okay, now I want to talk about original sin. Original sin is what the scriptures describe as our natural state. It is the state of depravity 
in all men that follows the fall. So remember that that text from Romans 5 says, through one man, uh, sin entered in the world and it infected all men. Well, that infection is hereditary. It is coming from from birth, from conception, man to man. It's it's passed down. So... (coughs) Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, By the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So what's passed down to us is guilt and sin. And this is ours before we can commit it. It's the condition we're in. Think about it this way. Think about sin as a disease, as a genetic disease that you pass down, that the parents each have to have in their bodies to pass down to their children, to their offspring. Um, Before you see the symptoms of that disease, the disease was already there, right? So before you see the problems that the child is going to suffer and carry in his body, it's already there in the cellular level in the chromosomes it's it's there well in the same way this is how sin is that the disease is already there even though you haven't seen the effects of it yet it's already there the original sin is something that we have we take by faith because it's a it's very difficult and i admit this being the father of of two two sons who are still with us um you hold a baby and you look at the baby and you say, this is beautiful. This is the most precious, amazing thing. And you're elated and you look, you can stare at the baby all day and you love your child. And yet at the same time, uh, it's, it's very hard to conclude this baby is a sinner. <laughs> so he hasn't done anything wrong. He, he doesn't, hasn't opened his mouth to me. He hasn't struck anybody. This is the most pure the most pure thing in the world that I could see with my own eyes is this baby. And then yet the scriptures are telling me that this baby is sinful. Now, well, of course, well, let's try and let's back this up, figure it out. Well, I'm sinful. I know that I, my wife is sinful. She knows that. Well, what hope do my children have? If I'm sinful, my wife is sinful. Well, who, what kind of child are we going to have? We're going to have a sinner. If you have the disease, your wife has the disease. What kind of disease will, will your child have? He's going to have it. This is, this is what's going on. Uh, so we, we call original sin original because of three reasons. And I'll explain this and then I'll give some proofs for this. But one, the first reason is that it, its origin is from Adam. So it's the root and the beginning of the human race. So if it's coming in Adam, uh, then it's coming through all who come from Adam. Two, it's connected with the origin of his descendants, how his descendants, where they come from. And it's an unbroken chain of people, uh, unbroken chain of sinners. Well, the third reason we, we use the word original is because it is the origin and fountain of all actual sins. So when we talk about original sin, we're talking about the thing that sin comes from. Where does it originate? Right, we talk about it in this way. Now, <clears throat> I want to say that um, knowing this, uh, I, I want to throw two sentences out to you. 
and see which one you think is correct. Uh, the first one is we sin because we're sinners. And the second statement is we are sinners because we sin. So the first one, we sin because we're sinners or we are sinners because we sin. And which one is right? Well, yeah, according to the scriptures, it is the first one. We sin because we're sinners. That sin is the fruit of uh, the tree. It is the symptom. Murder is a symptom of sin, of hatred. Uh, uh, adultery is a symptom of lust. Lust. Um, lying is a symptom of it, it, so on and so forth. That these things we see the effects, but there's a cause, and there's something deeply uh, in there, and that's original sin in the heart. Uh, and this original sin is simply the lost image of God in us. So remember, we talked about the image of God last time. Well, that image has been lost. We've lost the righteousness and holiness, and so what's left? Sinfulness and guilt. Now. Uh, the question is, well, when do we get this original sin? At what point does it awaken itself in us? Or at what point is it there? Well, this original sin comes to us in conception. Psalm 51 verse 5. This you should remember very, very well. Uh, the psalmist says, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. So that the moment of conception is when we are, um, we are sinful. John chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus himself says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now, the Bible uses the word flesh in two different ways. One, referring to the body, just physical things. And then again, referring to the fallen world as a, um, as a term encompassing all wickedness. Well, in the context of John 3, what Jesus is talking about is flesh. Wickedness is born of wickedness. Wickedness comes from wickedness. Okay, so whatever is born of uh, the body is then wicked, right? So we have this even in our uh, conception. We are. So there's not a moment in our life, not even a nanosecond in our life that we are without sin, that we're not affected by sin. Now, I want to talk about our baby's sinful. Well, we can look at two proofs of this. Uh, well, three if you include the scriptures, but let's put the scriptures aside and say, let me just look with my eyes. What do I see? Well, uh, babies and children are naturally disobedient. Uh, Psalm 25 verse 7 says, remember not the sins of my youth or childhood. L let, me, let me put it this way. My son, Martin, he's four years old. He lies. He speaks back. Uh, he hits his brother. Uh, he does what's wrong. He's ashamed. Uh, where did, who taught him that? <laughs> who, how, who taught him how to shout back at me or scream or not to go to bed when I tell him to go to bed? Who, who taught him how to, how to lie? Nobody taught him. It's coming from a source. There, it, where is the, the origin of that? Well, that's his heart. That's his poor, miserable condition that he inherited from me. That's my fault. If I was better, if I was without sin, then he would have a chance. But he has no chance because neither me or, nor his mother are without sin. Nor were our parents and so on and so forth. 
Um, so that's the first thing is natural disobedience. We're constantly having to teach children to do good and they naturally do bad. Well, the second thing is infant mortality. 